Let's, uh, let's stand now as we come to the Bible. Revelation chapter 3, and we're looking uh, from verses 14 to 22. <clears throat> let's pray now as we come to God's Word. Lord, thank you so much for your Word, and we pray that by your Spirit, you would, uh, as uh, these seven letters uh, conclude each time, suggest that you will give us ears to hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And we pray this uh, for Jesus' glory and in his name. Amen. So Revelation three fourteen to 22. Let's hear God's word. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea writes, The words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire, so that you may be rich, and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Do please sit down. Well, I suppose it's true that uh, friendship has long been considered one of the great, if not the greatest, of uh, the delights of life. In the ancient world, friendship was held in very high esteem and uh, was even considered to be the most wonderful of all human experiences. Even those Victorians who we think of as rather starchy and sort of keeping people at a distance, the Victorians would wax lyrical on the subject of friendship. Modern life, however, seems to have created a situation where genuine friendship is becoming comparatively Rare. Actually, evidence of this is not hard to find. Men, in particular, 
seem these days to find it uh, very difficult, if not nearly impossible, to have not just buddies or, you know, people you friend, but real deep friends. And perhaps some of the technological advances don't help with that, though some may not hinder. Now, we could suggest various reasons for why this is so. It, It seems to have something to do with our modern Western life. After all, if you go outside of the West, friendship doesn't seem to be showing any sign of abating. While in the West, the very predominance of counselors and self-help books, they seem perhaps to function as sort of surrogate friends, at least in some, if by no means all instances. After all, here in our fast-paced American society, who has time for friendship or the emotional energy involved that's required for real friendship? And uh, in many places, how many people are there left who just spend enough of their lives in one city or one town to actually be able to build up real deep friends with enough time behind the relationship to uh, create the edifice of trust that's necessary for true deep friendship. Now, of course, friendship is an ideal in our lives, uh, I assume, for all of us. But it's an ideal that seems today to be sort of receding over the horizon of possibility with each new demand made upon us, each new geographical relocation, uh, each um, job shift, perhaps, e- each new wound even that we pick up from another attempted quick fix relationship. Yeah, of course, other more pressing matters just take up our attention, like economic survival, like family, like study, like work, like getting through the 5 to 7 p.m. daily crisis hour of family life. You know what I mean? All of which makes it good to know that when we come to the subject of religion, we can gladly leave our emotional vulnerability behind. You don't need to really engage with God personally at a deep friendship level. You just need to go through the motions in church, to enact the ritual in church. In fact, of course, the church itself is arguably an institution which has as its ideal the establishment of such a stable edifice that the vulnerability of spiritual engagement is no longer necessary. You don't need to cry out to God for funds. You have the money in an investment fund in the bank. It doesn't matter if you lose a person or two from the church. After all, there are still plenty more out there. God himself, well, can't he be helpfully kept at arm's length outside the parameter of our emotional and vulnerable center? Necessary, yet not engaged. 
Actually, one of the preeminent historians of the church summarized that it was exactly this haughtiness of sort of self-reliance which led the Reformation that began so well to become, over time, embroiled in worldly politics. And it was exactly this issue which was facing the church in Laodicea. Now, we see in our series on these seven letters to the seven churches of Asia, the different situations and needs of each of the churches and the Lord Jesus' remedy uh, each time. So, you remember for the Ephesians who had lost their first love, Christ, what does He do? He calls them back to remember what they did at first and so renew their first love. And to Smyrna, facing martyrdom, Christ calls them to bravery with some uh, strong um, encouragement. And to Pergamum, uh, which was in danger of being corrupted by doctrinal compromise, Christ calls them to consistency and discipline. To Thyatira, facing moral compromise, Christ calls them to purity. To Sardis, sleepy Sardis, Christ says, Awake! Put your trust not in your incomplete deeds, but in, in me, Jesus says, to, in him. To Philadelphia, which uh, Jesus commends without any hesitation, he urges them to continue, to continue to hold on to the word and not be shifted from their confidence in the word. And now we come finally in Laodicea, and what we find is we have a church that needs nothing. Look at verse 17. What are they saying to themselves? Jesus has been listening in and hearing their internal conversation, or perhaps the conversation in the parking lot, I don't know. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. They were fine, thank you very much. It was nice of Jesus, they were thinking to themselves, to have written them a personal letter, but they had a perfectly good organization. They didn't need money, they didn't need him. Nothing did they need. You see, what Jesus is saying in this letter is that religion which shuts him out is useless. And he says this in, uh, in three different ways. He, of course, is necessary first, even for the wealthy, second, even for the beautiful, and third, even for the healthy. So let's look at those uh, three points together. First, religion which shuts Jesus out is useless, for Jesus is necessary even for the wealthy first. Now, it's important to get a sense of just how horrified Jesus is that he even has to say this. So look at verse 15. What does he say there? He says, I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you are either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Now, some well-known words there that are often misunderstood that we need to get right. What's going on is they think they're wealthy. So look at verse 17. I have prospered, they're saying, when in fact they are not, verse 18, they need to get gold refined by fire. They need to find wealth. They need to get gold refined by fire 
from Jesus. And you put these different elements together and you get the picture of what was going on in Laodicea. You see, Laodicea was a remarkably rich city. It was a banking center. And uh, it was uh, one in which even famous Cicero cashed his bills of exchange. And its wealth was based on a number of different factors. One of these factors was its location. So Laodicea was at the crossroads of several important trading routes. And often uh, rich uh, city centers are like that, aren't they? They're a place where naturally you would go through. And Ramsey calls it at the knot, K-N-O-T, at the knot of a road system. And here, of course, then, it had every sort of geographical opportunity for advancing financial wealth by trading with all the people coming through. In fact, so attractive was Laodicea's wealth that there are records of rabbis complaining at the Jewish diaspora, the, the, the Jewish people who had who gone, you know, the Jewish diaspora, being drawn to Laodicea for its baths, gymnasiums, and general good time, you see. Despite this, however, Laodicea had one great vulnerability. That was its water, its water supply. See, its location was chosen for the road system, not for the water. And because of that, Laodicea had to pipe in its water from the surrounding Lycus Valley. Now, there are two other cities in the Lycus Valley which both received different degrees of attention in our New Testament. One was called Hierapolis, the other Colossae. In Hierapolis, there were steaming hot waters, renowned for their healing properties. In Colossae, there were cold, pure waters, fresh and renewing to the taste. In Laodicea, the water was piped in, and it arrived lukewarm. And initially, before settling, useless for anything apart from an emetic, that is a medicinal procedure to make you vomit. So they think they are wealthy, but Jesus is pointing out their vulnerability. They had wealth. Who could deny it? Cicero himself used them as, their, as his bank. Yes, they were wealthy. They also had tepid, stagnant, putrid water. So when Jesus says, uh, verse 16, I will spit you out of my mouth, well, honestly, that's a rather polite phrasing. He is saying, I am about to vomit you out of my mouth. You see, that tepid, lukewarm, deposit-encrusted water which makes you vomit if you don't treat it right first, well, that's exactly how you make me feel, church at Laodicea, Jesus is saying. How I wish you were either hot, that is, like the bubbling, beautiful waters at Hierapolis, or cold, that is, like the refreshing springs at Colossae. But instead, you just think you're so perfect, but really you make me sick. <laughs> it's an amazing thing for, to be said. In fact, it's the only time such an emotion is predicated of God in the whole Bible. He's not angry. He's not disappointed. He's disgusted. But there is grace. 
says, I will, that is, or about to. That is, there's, a, there's space, there's, there's room for a change of heart for Laodicea, the church there, as we will see. So they need to realize they need to buy from Jesus gold refined by fire. They may have riches. Jesus is saying there's a kind of wealth, a kind of riches they do not have and desperately need. Why? For second, not only are they really poor, they're also really naked. So second, religion which shuts Jesus out is useless, for he is necessary even for the beautiful, even for the perfect looking, as well as those with a perfect bank balance, even for the beautiful. Look at verse 17 again. They don't think they need anything, but they are not realizing that they are wretched pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. And Jesus, uh, so what does he mean by that? Well, Jesus counsels them. Now, think how gentle and friendly is that word. He counsels them. He's counseling them to buy from him white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. Now, the thing here is that not only was Laodicea famous for its wealth in general, in particular, it had an international trade in textiles. And one garment became so widely well-known that at the much later Council of Chalcedon in 451 AD, Laodicea was simply referred to by the name of that garment, the Trimata. Yet, beautifully dressed as they were, the church in Laodicea was really naked. Now, nakedness, as you perhaps realize in biblical phraseology, is often connected to shamefulness or wretchedness. While in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve were both naked and felt no shame, since nakedness evokes wretchedness. And so, also then, being given clothes, approval and blessing. And so in the Bible, Joseph was granted new clothes by Pharaoh when he was advanced to his position of vice-regent over Egypt. It's a sign of blessing and approval. And the prophet Isaiah, well, he walked naked for three and a half years as a sign of the coming judgment upon Israel through Assyria. Now here, though, they are to buy clothes from Jesus, not meaning that such blessing is not a free gift from Jesus, but rather once more pointing out their superficial self-reliance. They are to buy, that is, go to the market, the market town that they were so proud of being. They thought they were the great commercial buyers and sellers at a profit. Yet it was they who needed to buy from Jesus to receive from Jesus. Uh, Of course, the World Series of Baseball happens every year. Perhaps not as popular as before, a Gallup poll suggested that baseball ranks third behind basketball and football as the public's favorite sport to watch these days. But nonetheless, it's a significant event in the yearly calendar. Now, it's like Jesus here is saying, you think you have got the World Series completely sewn up and you are going to win it yet again. But actually, it's you who need to learn just how to pitch at all. You cannot even get the thing over the plate. 
They were this great textile center. And it was they who had to import clothes from Jesus. You see. Yet third, because they are not only really poor and really naked, they are also really blind. They, they just don't see it. So look at so verse 17, they think they don't need anything because, verse 18, uh, they need to uh, buy salve to anoint their eyes so that they may see. Once more, the irony that uh, is being used here by Jesus, the irony is thick. Laodicea was a medical center with a specialization in ophthalmology. And it was they who needed to import salve to put on their eyes? It's possible, actually, that a certain reputed ancient formula for improving eye problems called Phrygian powder was made locally. Certainly, the medical school at Laodicea was founded by a person who was mentored by a specialist in that area. In other words, they've got the eyesight thing all sorted. They make spectacles, if you like. And Jesus says, get some from him because you're not seeing straight or even seeing at all. You are blind and you need some salve so that you can see. What was going on? How come they seemed so respectable, so organized, so sorted, wealthy, well-clothed, balanced, and yet were really pitiful, poor, naked, and wretched? I don't think they would have realized it. This, of all the letters, would have come as a shock. They were doing just fine, you see, they thought. In fact, they were neither cold nor hot. They were avoiding those dangerous extremes. I I rather imagine that they would have got to verse 15 when the letter was read out, and everyone would have been nodding and saying, Oh yes, quite so, we are neither hot nor cold. Thank goodness, praise the Lord, you see. And suddenly Jesus points out the issue. Yes, neither cold nor hot. You're lukewarm, like that tepid water that makes you throw up. But what was the issue? There are hints here, but you've got to pick it out carefully. Note verse 14, how Jesus introduces himself. The words. Now, that's the standard introduction that we saw last week. Only Pergamon answered with also holding on to the word. The words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. Now, the Amen is Hebrew, which the phrase faithful and true witness is an expansion for the non-Hebrew speakers in the congregation. So, God is the God of truth. He is the truth, the God of Amen. John there is probably picking up the divine epithet, the divine name from Isaiah chapter 65, verse 16. 
He is God, the God of our men, the real and true God. This is Jesus. The Amen, the faithful and true witness. And note, the beginning of God's creation. It is the beginning of creation, not the first thing created, but the active principle of creation, the source, the originator, the preeminent, uncreated principle of creation, as one commentator puts it. Now, if you're familiar with your Bibles, as we talk like this, this will begin to sound to you very much like another passage in the Bible, Colossians chapter 1 and from verse 15 onwards. where Jesus is exalted in similar terms as the beginning of all, the uncreated principle of creation, the God, the I Am, the ruler. And the Colossians, you see, were just down the road from Laodicea, about 10 miles or so, under 10 miles. And they would have been in constant communication. In fact, it's possible that their pastor at the time was drawn from the congregation in Colossae. At least one speculates that that was the case. At any rate, they were close. They knew each other well. Because of that, it's likely that the same doctrinal issues which trouble the Colossians were impinging on the Laodiceans in somewhat of a different form, no doubt. In Colossians, there was a troubling tendency of some kind to give way to a syncretized form of Christianity whereby Jesus became just one among many of the angelical powers of God mediating creation. You see, and instead, Jesus is powerfully proclaimed as God Himself, the beginning of creation. Here, too. Here, probably less doctrinal, more practical, but still, the Laodiceans were marginalizing Jesus. But Jesus is the Amen. He is God and He is absolutely necessary for all spiritual prosperity, wealth, true wealth, clothing and beauty, true beauty, seeing and insight, true insight. Their material prosperity at Laodicea had combined with this sort of hearsay of this aberrant teaching down the road at Colossae to give the church here at Laodicea a feeling, a, a nice lukewarm feeling that they could do it without Jesus. God was quite enough. But Jesus is the Amen. And it is from Him, the original here is quite emphatic, from Him personally that they must, in Laodicean terms, do business. They must buy gold, clothes, and eye salve. For religion that shuts out Jesus is useless. 
It's just an emetic. And now we can hear with real clarity those famous words of Jesus often quoted in this uh, passage about him standing at the door and knocking, captured in Holman Hunt's The Light of the World. Listen now in this context. Behold, Jesus says, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. You see, this too is um, laced in local significance. So rich were the Laodiceans that after the recent earthquake that had affected many of the other churches in the whole region, after that recent earthquake, it was the boast of Laodicea that they alone of all the cities of Asia had rebuilt their city without any assistance from the emperor, without any imperial aid. And in fact, just recently, they had relayed a magnificent triple gate to the city. And now they could keep out whom, whom they would. And you see, with the Roman abuse of the ancient hospitality practice by billeting officials at great expense to the ruin of the more wealthy inhabitants of a particular community... Well, that gate, that triple gate that they had barred and shut, that was good news to the wealthy Laodiceans. But Jesus, though, is standing at it. He's not forcing his entry, he's knocking. He's not only knocking, he's he's calling out, if anyone hears my voice, outside the city, if anyone hears my voice, and the meal, it's not, a, it's not an abuse of that hospitality ancient practice, no, that meal is a meal of friendship. I will come in and eat with him and he with me. A table together. Of course, what's so remarkable about those words is uh, that they're written to Christians. Appropriately used in evangelistic contexts, of course, but written to a church. See, he's standing at the door and knocking. Church. As you go through the the rituals. Anyone hear my voice? Can I come in? I wonder what we are doing to keep Jesus at arm's length. We frighten he will abuse our hospitality. 
Have we been hurt by people or religion? And we do not want to be hurt again. Will you open the door of your heart to Jesus today? You say, what will happen if you do? Jesus promises, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. So what will happen is a reestablished friendship between you and the Amen, the Lord Jesus Christ. Without him, you have nothing. But only with him and being friends, yes, friends with him, will you sit on the throne of destiny, of the rulership of the age to come, life to come after death. Perhaps even you need a friend in heaven. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we do keep you at arm's length. And there can be many reasons for that. But there is no good reason to keep the gate barred against you. Perhaps there is a sin that we do not wish to give up. Perhaps there is a calling on our life buried deep inside that we wish at all costs to avoid. Perhaps there is a, uh, a challenge to go deeper, to be open to Jesus leading us in fresh devotion. Jesus, we pray that you would help us to hear your voice and open the door. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.